Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. That's where we're going to be this morning. While you get situated there in Judges 6, uh, I just have a couple of, of quick things. The first is that we, about once a month, we have the opportunity to do baptisms here. And a lot of times those, uh, praise the Lord, those are children from our children's ministry or from True Seekers like this morning. Uh, and we get the chance to celebrate their faith and their public proclamation of a desire uh, to follow Christ for the rest of their life. Uh, but it's certainly, baptism does not have to be a child. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've not ever taken that step of obedience to be baptized, we want to encourage you to find one of our staff members here. You can do that this morning. You can send us an email. Uh, we would love to talk with you more about what baptism is, why we do it, why you should uh, take part in that step of obedience. Um, we know that there are adult individuals here in our church who have not taken that step yet, and we'd love to be able to celebrate that step of obedience alongside you. So if that's you, please reach out to one of us on staff. We'd love to begin a discussion with you about uh, what that means, what that looks like, why we do it, um, and kind of walk through that process alongside you. The second thing is that over the next two weeks, um, Bruce Dawson and then Randy Binkley will be teaching on Sunday morning. Bruce will take us through Ruth in the beginning part of the uh, of 1 Samuel. That's not this week's reading, but next week's reading in the Bible Initiative. And then uh, Randy will be the Sunday after that, and he'll look at Saul, the first king in Israel. I'm going to be out for two weeks on a study break sabbatical time. I'm actually going to be using the time to write the last two books of our Bible Initiative. So uh, the one on the Gospels and then the one on the Epistles. Um, so I won't be here on Sunday morning, but Bruce and Randy will do a fantastic job of continuing to walk through the large story of Scripture, and they'll pick up where we leave off this morning, which is this morning and throughout our reading this week, we're going to complete the book of Judges. And so if, you're, if you've got a Bible, you've got to open to, or to Judges chapter 6. It's the story of Gideon. He's one of uh, the Judges in Israel during the era of the judges. And what we're going to see this morning is something we've seen repeatedly over uh, the last four months while we've walked through Genesis up to this point. And it's that what is most important, what is most uh, evident as we read Scripture, is that though the primary characters in the Bible come and go, and certain individuals rise to places of prominence or places of leadership, or they rise up to save Israel, as we're going to see here in the book of Judges, God is the constant actor. It's his presence with any given individual. It's his presence in all of our circumstances uh, that makes his will move forward. He's always present in everything that we do. I uh, was thinking this week about learning how to ride a bicycle. I don't know if you remember that time in your life, or maybe you've got a child who's at bicycle riding age right now. When I grew up, our house had a very slanted driveway, and our street was actually... Uh, very sloped, and so there wasn't a great place to learn how to ride a bike. So what we had to do is we grabbed the bike and we walked down to the bottom of our street, and kind of the through street in our neighborhood in Wilshire was flat for a long ways. And so when it was my sister's time, my dad and her went down there. When it was my turn to learn, he took me down there. And there's a similar pattern to learning how to ride a bicycle that I think plays out for most people. You get the training wheels off of there, and you get the helmet buckled on, and you get your child or yourself situated on the bike, feet on the pedals, and you're explaining that they just need to start pedaling, and they look back at mom or dad or whoever's there, and there's this statement. 
promise you won't let go. To which mom or dad says, I won't let go. Okay, well, don't let go until I tell you. All right, I won't let go until you tell me. And so you get moving forward. And child is pedaling, and mom or dad is holding the seat. They're really doing all the work. They're kind of moving things forward and keeping the bike balanced and everything upright. And then inevitably, what typically happens is that before child says they're ready, mom or dad, let's go, right? Because it seems like everything's going really well. And then three or four pedal strokes later, it's like man down, right? The bike topples over and child's on the ground, maybe in the grass, maybe on the sidewalk. And there's this real quick, you promised. Well, you, it seemed like you had everything going really well. I thought, I thought you were doing great. And so then you do it again. And again, and again, until the child figures it out, until they're able to ride on their own. And it's really the presence of mom or dad in the beginning there that makes it possible for the child to ride the bike. And then eventually mom or dad's able to let go and they can ride on their own. What's, what we're going to see here, what we've seen in scripture already, what we're going to see in the life of Gideon is that God is holding the bicycle, if you will. We've got to do some pedaling and we're trying to do some steering, but God's holding the bicycle. He's moving it forward. He's keeping everything in balance and he's not ever going to let go. He's not ever just turning us loose. He's always moving his will forward. So we're going to see that in the life of Gideon. We're also going to take a big kind of step back and we're going to take a look at this cycle that we talked about last week and how it plays out in the life of one judge. Last week we talked about the fact that in the book of Judges, seven times this cycle plays out, that the Israelites sin, and their sin is the sin of idolatry. They worship something as God that is not God. And because of their sin, there's a judgment that comes upon them, and that judgment is that God turns them over to some group of Canaanite people, the people that the Israelites left living in the promised land. And those individuals force the Israelites into Oppression, there's affliction, there's this servitude that happens. And in the midst of their servitude, the Israelites cry out to the Lord in supplication or prayer. And in the same way that their sin moved God to judgment, their cry for help moves God to mercy and compassion for them. And so he raises up a judge who brings them salvation. And as long as that judge is living, the Israelites are free from the oppression and the affliction that some people group brought upon them. But as soon as that judge dies, the cycle starts back over seven times in the book of Judges. And so what I want us to do is just see this in Gideon. So if you've got your Bible open, in Judges chapter 6, verse 1 says this, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's their sin. Judges 6, 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Keep, keep reading in verse 1. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. There's their judgment, their servitude. They get oppressed. And the type of oppression and affliction that happens for them, in this case, from the Midianites, is very similar to if you've ever seen the movie A Bug's Life. In A Bug's Life, there's this group of ants, and Flick is the main uh, ant character, and there are these grasshoppers that the ants have to build this massive pile of food for, and the grasshoppers take it from them. And then whatever's left over, the ants can eat. That's actually exactly what's happening in Israel. The Midianites are taking their food. The Israelites grow it, harvest it, the Midianites come in, and they take it. That's the affliction that they're experiencing. And it's in the midst of that that verse 6 tells us this. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. 
There's supplication. There's prayer. They, in the midst of their sin, they get judged and placed into servitude. There's affliction and oppression, and they cry out for help. Lord, would you please come and save us? And he's merciful to them. Look at Judges 6.14. And the Lord turned to him. That's Gideon. We'll get to Gideon in a second. And said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Of Midian. Do I not send you? He raises up a judge. A military, sort of uh, political type leader who's going to bring them freedom from their oppressors. And if you flip over to chapter 8, verse 28, maybe it's a page or so ahead of where you currently are. We see the outcome of that. Judges 8, 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the day of Gideon. There's their salvation. Sin, servitude, supplication. Lord brings salvation through Gideon, and it lasts for the 40 years of his life. But then if you jump down to verses 33 and 34 of chapter 8, we're told this, as soon as Gideon died, as soon as he died, verse 34, the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. The cycle starts back over. As you read, you read some of Judges last week, you're going to read more of Judges this week, you'll see a lot of this same verbiage, almost word for word pop up, that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that because of that, he handed them over. And it'll name a people group that he handed them over to. Sometimes the Philistines. This time the Midianites. Other times it's the Canaanites. And then they, realizing their affliction, they cry out for help. And the Lord hears them. He raises up a judge. And then it starts all over again. Seven different times we see that. One of the things that we've encouraged over the course of reading the Old Testament here over the last few months, is to look for Christ in the midst of the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. It anticipates the coming of a Savior who will save all of humanity from the reality of their sin. And the book of Judges, particularly these cycles, are a beautiful picture of that. Jesus is our perfect, eternal, everlasting judge. Now, he's definitely going to judge in the way that we think in terms of judging those who have placed their faith in him and those who have not. But he's also a judge in the book of Judges sense. He is a savior who has brought salvation to his people. Let me just kind of walk through it quickly. There's sin. All of humanity has it. You have it. I have it. We're born with it. It's inherent within us. And so in the midst of our sin, at some point we realize the affliction of it, the oppression of it, that you're just trapped in it, that you think that chasing something other than the Lord is going to bring fulfillment to some longing in your life, and ultimately it does not happen. And so you find yourself trapped in this needing more and more and more of whatever sin it is that you've adopted in order to fill some gap in your heart or to plug some hole in your life. And Hopefully, at some point, you see Jesus Christ on the cross, that he died for your sin. He took the penalty of that upon himself, the punishment of that upon himself, and you cry out in supplication or prayer that God would save you. And by faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, salvation comes to you. 
God doesn't have to raise up someone at multiple points in your life. And it's not that we're only faithful so long as that person is alive because Jesus is forever our judge. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's going to be there eternally so that so long as you have placed your faith in him, no one else is needed for your salvation. You have it. He's defeated the penalty of sin for you. He's given you power to walk away from the presence of sin in your life. And so the cycle need not repeat itself. He's put an end to this for us. What we see in Ehud or Shamgar, Deborah or Gideon or Samson, the judges in the book of Judges, ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is our perfect, eternal, ultimate judge. What we said about the judges is that God raises up someone who's able to save some of the Israelites from some of their oppression for some period of time. What we have in Jesus Christ is an eternal judge who has saved all of humanity from all of their sin for all time. He is our perfect, everlasting, eternal judge. He's greater than any judge you, could, you will ever read about in the book of Judges. He has fulfilled the shadow that they cast toward the cross. All of the Old Testament anticipates Jesus, including the book of Judges. I want us to kind of revisit a little bit of what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about the importance of discipleship. That in Judges 2 verse 7 we hear that there was this generation of Israelites who knew the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And so we're told that Joshua's generation is faithful to the Lord so long as they're alive. All of the people that outlive Joshua who are alive at the same time as him are faithful. And yet they make this compromise. They don't remove all of the people from the promised land. And they have this failure of discipleship. So that in Judges 2 verse 10 we're told that there arose in Israel a generation that did not know the good work of the Lord. There's a, a failure to pass on what God has done on behalf of Israel. and So there's this unfaithful generation. When you jump forward to Gideon and the people who lived at this time, they're going to see the good work that the Lord does in saving them. They're going to see it firsthand with their own eyes. And yet as soon as Gideon dies, we're told, the people do not remember the Lord their God. We talked a lot about discipleship last week. We talked a lot about parenting. We're going to revisit that this week because we're going to see a critical truth, and it's this, that fruit from our best discipleship requires something greater than our own effort. You can lay out the best discipleship plan, the best parenting plan. You can lay out the best evangelism strategy or mission strategy, and it requires something more than just human effort. You've got to do more than just pedal the bike. We've got to have the power of the Lord holding it, guiding it, and moving it forward. So we're going to look at that in the life of Gideon. Um, I'm going to begin reading in Judges chapter 6, verse 7, if you want to jump to there with me. The people are afflicted, and so this is what it says. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who opposed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed my voice. The first thing that happens when the Israelite people cry out for help in the midst of their affliction is that God sends them a prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of the Lord. He speaks a word of God to the people of God. 
And that word is, hey, don't forget, I saved you out of Egypt. I saved you from the Egyptian people. I brought you to the promised land. I cleared it out for you, and I have given you that land. But you have forgotten. You have not obeyed my voice. And at the same time that the Israelite people get this prophet, Gideon has an interaction with the angel of the Lord. Here's what we see. I'm going to start in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon is hiding inside. Threshing wheat is an outdoor activity. You actually need the wind. You take it and you throw it up in the air, and the wind separates the lighter chaff from the heavier wheat, and so it falls in two separate piles. Gideon is doing that inside because he's afraid that if the Midianites see that he has this wheat, they're going to come and they're going to take it. That's what they've been doing. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and he says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor, to which Gideon probably thought, dude, I'm hiding inside. Don't talk to me about man of valor. I'm just trying to thresh my wheat so that I can have a little bit of it to spare for myself. We're told that it's the angel of the Lord that comes to him. And if you'll uh, humor me on a detour here really quickly. In Judges 6, 7, and 8, and then also again in uh, Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16, you're going to see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, repeatedly. It appears 51 times in the Old Testament. And Judges is the densest portion of that, where it appears the most. Other times in the Old Testament, you see the phrase, an angel of the Lord. There's an intentional difference there. The angel of the Lord literally translates to the messenger of the Lord. And scholars agree that anytime you see that phrase, what you're seeing is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. I'm going to break that down for you. That before Christ came in the flesh in the form of a baby at Bethlehem and was born into the world, he appeared multiple times in the Old Testament to individuals. It's this reinforcement of the fact that Jesus, the Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is eternal just like the Father is and just like the Holy Spirit is. Jesus doesn't come into existence when he's born at Bethlehem. He has always existed. And throughout the Old Testament, we get pictures of that. This is one of them. Gideon is talking to the messenger, the angel of the Lord. He's talking to pre-incarnate Jesus, if you will. He's talking to the son who's come as the messenger of the Lord to say, I'm using you, Gideon, to bring salvation to the Israelite people. Now, later on, Jesus is going to be born. The Son is going to come into the earth, and He's no longer the messenger. He's also the Savior. He's no longer come to say, someone's going to save you. He's come to do that work Himself. So when you read this and you see the angel of the Lord, Gideon is talking to the Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In fact, in verse 14, we get a picture that Gideon understands that that the author of Judges understands that. Verse 14 says, And the Lord turned to him and said. So Gideon's having this interaction, and it goes on in verse 15. Let me continue with what we're told in the text. Verse 15 says this, And he said to him, and Gideon said to the angel, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, 
and you will strike the Midianites as one man. Gideon says, how is it possible? I'm from the smallest clan. I'm the weakest in my father's house. How is it possible that I could save Israel? And God replies, that's exactly the point. It's not about you, Gideon, or your strength or your size. It's never been about any individual human throughout Scripture up to this point and all the way through. It's never been that for you. It's not about your size, your strength, your capacity, your ability. It's about the presence of the Lord with you. It's not about how hard you pedal the bike. It's about the fact that dad or mom is standing behind you, guiding it so that you don't topple over onto the sidewalk. The crucial, the critical issue in all of our circumstances is not our capacity, but God's presence. It's not our capability, it's God's presence with us. The angel of the Lord makes no promise that this is going to be an easy task for Gideon. He makes no promise that Gideon's going to be somehow elevated among his people. He just simply says, I will be with you. And then what happens next goes on to underscore that. From verse 17 all the way to the end of chapter 6, Gideon has this back and forth with the angel of the Lord to make sure that God is actually going to do the thing that he says he's going to do. Uh, It's the most popular story or portion of Gideon's life. It's where he fleeces the Lord. Gideon says, make everything else around the fleece dry, Lord, but the fleece wet, and that happens. And then the next day he says, okay, this time make everything around the fleece wet and the fleece itself dry, and that happens, in order to reassure Gideon. God is incredibly patient and gracious while he does that in three separate occasions. You'll read about it this week. I'm going to jump down to verse 7, because Gideon does what any of us would do. Or I'm going to jump down to chapter 7, excuse me. Gideon does what any of us would do in this situation. He puts together a giant army. He gets 32,000 men together and he says, we're going to go down there and we're going to attack the Midianites. And in chapter 7, verse 2, this is what happens. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. God says, I see your large army, Gideon, that's wonderful, but there are too many of them. If you go down there with that army, you're going to walk away and say to yourselves, hey, look at what we just did. Us and this large army, we just attacked the Midianites and we got the victory and it's going to be all about you and your people, Gideon, so I need to weed out a few of them. So if anybody's afraid, let them go home. Two-thirds of them leave and there are 10,000 men remaining, but that's still too large. This is what happens in verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Takes his army, remaining army of ten thousand down to this pond or stream and 
God says that anyone who bends down and puts their face in the water, which turns out to be 9,700 of them, send those guys home. Anyone who dips down and grabs water in their hands and then laps it like a dog, he says, those are the ones you're going to go to battle with. And there are 300 of them remaining. And of the 300, you'll notice what it says they've got left in their hands. Trumpets and food. No mention of any weapons. If you'd have gone with all 32,000 and all of your weapons and all of your stuff, God says, you would have thought that this was about you. But now you're left standing with 300 men and some trumpets. And this is what happens. Verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against them. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were at the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay among the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of this dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the hosts of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Verses 19 through 25, that's exactly what they do. They walk down there with their trumpets and torches, all 300 of them, and they approach the camp and they blow the trumpets and that is enough to give them victory over the Midianites. It wasn't about the strength of Gideon, right? O mighty man of valor, hiding in your wine press, treading out grain. Gideon's might and his valor come from the presence of the Lord. And God wants to be certain that when the Israelites go and they do this, that it's him and him alone who receive the glory for it, that it's his power that does it. You see, God longs to be great among his people. We've seen that over and over again. And throughout the Old Testament, he's made himself great by using the perceived weakness of the Israelites. God uses human weakness to display divine power. He's been doing that since the beginning of human history. It's the finite nature of human ability that gives full view to the infinite reach of God's ability. It's the boundaries of our humanity that allow God to show the boundlessness of his divinity. It's that way all throughout the Old Testament. It's that way here for Gideon. It's that way in the New Testament. It's that way in your life today. In fact, Paul writes about this. If you're taking notes, you can jot down 2 Corinthians 12, or if you're a a quick trigger, you can flip there. Paul begins talking about boasting in the Lord. And at the end of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. For Gideon, that would be saying, if I must boast, I'm going to boast about the fact that we only had 300 men. 
and that God did something amazing in the midst of that. You jump down to chapter 12, verse 7. It says this. Paul's talking about this affliction that he has. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that's the things he's writing, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you've got a Bible that puts the words of Christ in red, you'll notice in the middle of chapter 7 there that Jesus speaks one sentence. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul understood that God longs to be made great among his people. He understood that God uses human weakness to display divine power, that his, perfect is, or his power is made perfect in our weakness. We see that in the person of Jesus Christ. The Son of God takes on human flesh and comes to the world. He's born into humble circumstances in a manger in Bethlehem. And then he lives his life not as a king, but he lives it as a poor and a wandering preacher. And then he's put to death in the most humiliating way possible. And yet there, in that life, is the perfect picture of God's power. All sorts of things that look weak about Jesus become the ultimate display of God's power to save. Russell Moore says it this way, the power of God is found in what the rest of the world calls weakness. I want to revisit last week's topic of discipleship one more time. You see, we said at the beginning that something more is needed than merely your best efforts. You could lay out the best parenting or discipleship strategy You could be incredibly intentional with your children for the 18 years that they live in your house, or you could be incredibly faithful to walking a coworker or a neighbor through Scripture really, really well, and you could get to the end of that and feel like your words were great and you did a good job, and you could ask, do you want to put your faith in Jesus? And they might look you square in the eye and say, absolutely not. That's because them coming to faith was never about the eloquence of your words or the effectiveness of your parenting. It was about the power of the Lord. In your parenting or in your discipleship, the first thing you should do is hit your knees in prayer that the Spirit of God would move in power among those that you're ministering to. That the Lord would empower your weakness and your efforts and that He would be made great in the midst of what you're doing. We make the Lord great in our midst when we make sure that the world knows that it is His power not ours, that has made the difference in our life. We make the Lord great when everyone understands that it is God and only God who has all the power to save all of his people from all of their sin from all time, or for all time, and not something that we might do. We make the power of God evident when the people around us understand that our life is built on humility, repentance, submission, dependence, reliance, in prayer, those are the things that the world calls weak, that we say, no, that's where the power of God is found. The power of the Lord to save me is found in my repentance. The power of the Lord to work through me is found in my submission, not in my talents, not in my abilities. The power of God is found in understanding that you might be doing some pedaling, but ultimately he isn't letting go of the bike. That you might have thought you needed 32,000 men, but God said you need 300 and let me do the rest. That's where the power of the Lord 
is. It's a reliance upon the power of the Spirit to work to achieve His will in our life, His will in His world, for His glory to the end of time. So what we want to do this morning is we want to end by singing. We're going to sing some songs that are all about focusing our hearts and our minds on the reality of God's power. One of the songs we're going to sing is All I Have is Christ. And that's exactly what the chorus says. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Thank you that all I have is Christ, or else I might begin to believe that I've got something within me that could save me. The other song says, um, Through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you, and it is well with my soul. My eyes aren't on my ability or our ability as a church. They're not on some super Christian's ability to teach the word or proclaim the truth. No, it's about the Spirit of God moving powerfully for His sake. Let's pray and then we'll sing. God, thank you for this morning, for the chance to come and witness your power in the baptism of some individuals who have placed their faith in your, life, in your son.